Hi everyone and welcome to episode 5 in the new series of Economy. For those who are new, I created the show in an attempt to make economics more accessible and hopefully provide listeners with a foundation of knowledge to evaluate the economy. My name is Will Haynes and I've been involved either as a student or as a teacher of economics for the past 15 years. The theme for this series is to host monthly conversations with the next generation of social scientists on some of the most topical issues facing society. I've been fortunate enough in my profession to teach a number of gifted and inspiring students and these individuals offer me plenty of hope and optimism for the future. My guest today is Abhishek Patel, who is a senior analyst for Mansfield Advisors, specialising in healthcare. I taught Abhishek in my first year as a teacher and I can only describe him as an academic machine. With his main interest in the sciences, he only studied economics for one year, but remains very much in touch with the subject. He went on to read natural sciences at Cambridge, where he continues to supervise first-year undergraduates on the weekend. He holds an MPhil in management from Cambridge Judge Business School and is a cricket badger. My lasting memory of Abhishek is of him standing in front of the whole school and reading out the notices in the voice of Australian cricket commentator Richie Benno. In this episode, Abhishek and I discuss the future of the healthcare sector. We will explain the costs and benefits of private and public healthcare, the main changes we are experiencing in healthcare provision, the impact of the pandemic, and the role technology and artificial intelligence may play in the sector in the future. So without further ado, here is our discussion. A very warm welcome to you, Abhishek. Um, before we go on to talk about the health sector, let's talk cricket. Um, your cricket's number one fan. Are England that bad? Are India that good? Or is the pitch terrible? Well, I think it's a balance between uh, England being bad and India being good. But the one thing I say, I've got no qualms about the pitch whatsoever. I thought it was actually a fair and uh, challenging pitch for test cricket. Um, but I've got no issues with the test ending in two days if both sides have batted uh, poorly, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think 21 or 23 of the dismissals in that last test uh, was the straight balls. Um, I think that conditions should always be challenging um, overseas um, on tours. Uh, it's part, of, part and parcel of the game. Uh, and I think look, England will learn from it. From it. Um, equally, I thought you know, India bowled well, but they also batted pretty poorly. Uh, and that kind of led to the test finishing so early. Um, but no, I'm very much with you know, the comments of legends Sonny Gavaskar, um, Ravi Ashwin, about the pitch being you know, fair for test cricket, although challenging. Uh, I think the batsmen just have to pick up their game, if I'm honest. Great, thank you. So my first question to you is, um, what are the costs and benefits of private and public um, healthcare provision? Um, and can you consider this a little bit from uh, an economic standpoint? Sure, okay, yes. Yeah. So in terms of UK healthcare provision, um, I think the first thing to note, it whilst it may be obvious, is that it's largely publicly provided. We have our national health service. The private sector only really plays a small role in UK healthcare provision. Um, so if we take the NHS England budget of about £115 billion, um, NHS spending on private services is only about £10 billion. So you're looking at around 8%. So the private sector is only playing a small role. Um, and and you know, it's one of the things I'm proud of um, as part of this country to have uh, an amazing public health system and public health service. Um, and the key benefit of that is that, of course, um, healthcare is free at the point of delivery. So this ensures healthcare equality. Um, and you know, why is this important? Well, you know, one could argue that it's um, a basic 
human rights to have access uh, to, to free healthcare. Um, but also, you know, a key advantage um, within the healthcare space is that, uh, you know, providing it for free at the point of care um, is important because healthcare is, uh, if you like, a merit good. Um, there are many positive externalities um, from it. Uh, and we've seen this with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so with infectious diseases, you know, community transmission, it makes sense uh, to have a healthcare system incentivized to treat everyone equitably um, to, to contain transmission um, and you know, also meet that basic rights to access of healthcare. The other thing to note, I think, which is particularly advantageous of that um, public provision is that healthcare emergencies are covered. So things like A&E, um, that's all under the remit of public healthcare um, services. Um, and again, you can argue that's a merit good, has uh, you know, numerous positive externalities, wider benefits on society. Um, you know, if you treat people efficiently and effectively, you can get them back into work. Um, and so you know, that has productivity benefits as well. But then you know, moving on to the private sector and the role that has to play within healthcare provision. As I said, it's only a small role and it's largely restricted to more routine um, you know, elective operations, things like um, orthopedic surgery, uh, cataract surgeries, ophthalmology procedures, etc. Um, simple things that you can plan. And the key advantage there of having a, a private healthcare system is that it adds capacity to an otherwise constrained public healthcare system. So, you know, even before the pandemic, um, we had you know, numerous capacity constraints, both in terms of um, you know, beds available to so infrastructure, hospitals, but more pertinently staffing, um, you know, large kind of gaps in both nursing and, and doctors. And so what the private sector allows is it adds that extra buffering capacity to the healthcare system to meet that ever rising demand um, for healthcare services and thereby help to tackle waiting times a little. Um, you know, going into the pandemic that February last year, um, estimated around four and a half million patients were on a waiting list. Uh, and you know, through the course of the first lockdown, um, estimates were that that almost doubled to, to nine million. Um, and, and so the private sector has an important role, uh, if you like, in dealing with that extra um, sort of demand uh, and that rising capacity uh, that COVID-19, um, you know, the demand that COVID-19 has created. Um, on top of that, uh, the private sector gives um, patients choice so they can choose treatments and they can choose which doctors they want um, and which hospital they want to be treated in. And um, finally, more incentivization uh, to become more efficient. So this is the idea that private sector hospitals, by virtue of being highly specialised um, in things like orthopaedic procedures, uh, ophthalmology procedures, anaesthetics, etc., um, the consultants are going to these private sector hospitals and doing these routine operations day in, day out. So that kind of increases their um, speed at doing these tasks, their efficiency, uh, and helps to deal with that rising demand. Great. You did touch upon um, a term an economic term, positive externalities there and merit goods. Would you mind just explaining to the listeners what you mean by that? Sure. So when I mean, uh, when I say positive externalities um, and merit goods, this is the idea that um, the private benefit derived from consuming healthcare, uh, if you like, um, is less than the wider societal benefit. Um, so, you know, by providing healthcare services to each person in the population, there are wider benefits beyond just the private benefit to the individual. Um, because as I said, um, that individual can then go back into work, for example, uh, and that can boost the productivity of the wider economy. Um, if you treat someone for an infectious disease, they're not gonna pass it on to someone else and make them sick as well. So it's just this 
you know, general idea that you have wider societal benefits and uh, net welfare gain to society um, from consuming that service. And just to clarify one thing, would you say that if the um, public healthcare system was adequately funded, that we wouldn't necessarily need then um, this sort of buffer as such? So I think the answer to that is if you fund anything enough, then you won't need um, a buffer. Um, where I think the private sector kind of does add value is through that specialization and more efficient use of, of resources. Um, and, you know, simply there isn't, you know, part of the problem is you've got infrastructure in place uh, and you can't, you know, that, that's what you've got to deal with. Um, you need to add on um, to that with, with private capacity. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think you've got a limited system uh, in place in the public sector and the private sector sort of adds to that. Great. And the second question I wanted to ask was, um, what were the main changes that we were experiencing as a country um, in healthcare, healthcare provision before the pandemic hit? Sure. So before the pandemic, um, I think there are a lot of changes going on as outlined by the NHS long-term plan. And if anything, the pandemic has accelerated a few of these trends. Um, but before the pandemic, um, sort of one of the key changes was this move to something called integrated um, health and social care systems or ICSs. Um, and the idea behind this is, you know, as of the uh, 2012 Health and Social Care Act, um, commissioning of healthcare services was organised into clinical commissioning groups or, or CCGs. And there are about 200 of these in the country um, and you know, responsible for certain population. And the idea with integrated care systems, ICSs, is, is to essentially cull that number down to 44. Um, so larger geographical boundaries, uh, but more importantly, uh, foster greater um, joined up care, if you like. So um, providing healthcare services um, with, you know, in conjunction with local authorities, other local partners, community services, uh, to thereby better needs, uh, better meets the long-term needs of uh, the local population. So the idea here is that ICSs would pool budgets together um, and you'd able, you know, they have a duty to collaborate, um, if you like, and oversee health, social care um, of their entire population catchment. So, you know, from an economic perspective, it's kind of moving away from this idea of individual organisations having autonomy uh, towards a more centralised system within each ICS um, and trying to provide the entire continuum of care right from entering as it, um, through the GP, uh, right through sort of post-acute rehabilitation and eventually kind of um, social care and you know, care homes and domiciliary care. So, you know, all of that should be under one umbrella rather than having individual organisations responsible um, for that. So those are ICSs. Um, in terms of other kind of main changes, um, there's been, you know, this overall kind of shift towards trying to provide as much care as possible in the community. So if you like step down from acute services in a sort of acute settings like um, hospitals uh, to more services in either community hospitals um, or you know, moving patients into nursing homes, care homes, um, or even treating them at home, because that obviously um, provides economic benefits. It's, it's cheaper, uh, or, um, often better for the patient. So the quality of life uh, is better if they're being treated at home. Um, and yeah, that's been the overall sort of shift, sort of trying to get patients from the hospital into the community or, or back at home. 
And finally, is a third kind of trend, this idea of increased focus on, on mental health. Uh, that was always happening before the pandemic, and I'd argue is you know, even more pertinent issue uh, now because of the multiple lockdowns, especially for young people. And so there was increases in funding for mental health, uh, particularly for things like IAPT, uh, talking therapies, cognitive behavioural therapies, etc., uh, and more community provision. So this is the idea that you know, up until now, a lot of mental health has been kind of high security, if you like, or you know, high acuity. Um, and so that more needed to be done in terms of providing community services, um, you know, a, a centralised helpline, if you like, um, because a lot of these mental health services are quite disparate. And so it's just joining those up into um, a more centralised system, similar to acute or physical healthcare provision, uh, which you know everyone we have our 999 that we can call. So you know having the equivalent of that for, for mental health um, is a key kind of trend and sort of change that uh, healthcare provision is moving towards. Great. And before I ask about the impact of the pandemic, I just wanted to know, or ask you about the impact of the pandemic on those three things. So. Has, I mean, has the pandemic actually halted um, or um, restricted maybe the momentum of those changes at all, um, particularly in terms of the first one that you mentioned? Is that being kind of put to one side just to, for now to deal with the pandemic and then they'll go back to the centralised um, system? Um, or is it a case there that actually this is an opportunity, the pandemic is, is an opportunity to push these a little bit forward? Yeah, well, um, integrated care systems, they've been in the pipeline for a while. Um, and as is the case with any kind of structural change in healthcare provision, um, you know, it takes time. Uh, and we've been waiting for a health and social care white paper for a while. And I'm pleased to see that it has been released as of uh, last month in, in January 2021. Um, and this health and social care white paper has you know, reiterated um, that priority of moving to ICSs. So now we have it um, you know, published by government. Um, and, you know, I think... COVID did delay the release of that white paper, um, but now it has been released and we have those plans. Um, this will only accelerate that move towards um, more integrated care. Um, so, so that's the first one. Um, in terms of moving care into the community, um, again, I think that makes sense um, because you want to keep hospitals uh, COVID free or you know, free of infectious diseases um, and you know almost have COVID free hospitals, if you like, and then um, you know, hospitals to treat COVID or, or infectious diseases um, in. And so it makes a lot more sense to try and move um, patients from the hospital, from acute settings, back into their own homes or in community, um, because that might sort of aid the actual um, control uh, of infectious diseases. Uh, and on that third point on mental health, um, as of now, I haven't sort of seen any commitments to increases in funding for mental health. Um, but as I said, there were commitments made before the pandemic, and I think this will only be increased further um, because of the impacts the pandemic has had, particularly on young people. Thank you. Um, and the big question I really want to ask you is, how will healthcare provision change now following the pandemic? So I think, you know, infection prevention uh, and control is, if, you know, is a priority now. Um, it's no longer will be. Uh, it is a priority. Um, and sort of, you know, now we've had one sort of experience with COVID-19, um, there will be more investment and resources put in place to try and deal with pandemics in the future. I also think um, that trends to, to move to integrated care systems will continue. 
Um, but also coming back to that point on capacity, I think there's going to be greater need for the private sector um, to step in and you know deal with that massive backlog of electives. Um, so you know if you look back at um, May last year, May 2020, um, elective surgeries um, were about 80 to 90 percent down compared to that month on the previous year. Uh, and because electives were halted throughout that entire first lockdown, a, a massive backlog of operations sort of built up. And so um, that backlog will have to be dealt with, you know, very long waiting times, if I've, as I've already alluded to. So I think, you know, moving sort of on from the second lockdown, I think private providers will have a lot more of a role to play in dealing with that backlog of, of, of operations. Additionally, I think those capacity constraints that I mentioned, those will have to be addressed um, with, with greater investment, particularly in staffing. Um, you know, nurse, doctor and, uh, nurse and doctor supply is outstripped, um, so it has, out, has been outstripped by demand growth, uh, I think for the last 10 years now. Um, so, you know, there's a, a great shortfall in terms of supply of, of staffing, you know, staffing ratios, nursing ratios in this pandemic have been exposed. Um, and so, you know, one of the numbers, we've seen healthcare expenditure about 10% of the UK GDP for a while. Um, I think that will need to increase, uh, you know, more towards France and Germany, which are at 12%. Um, and additionally to, start, additionally to staffing, the actual infrastructure as well. Um, the UK has the lowest number of beds per capita in Europe um, of about you know, 2.5 beds for every thousand of the population. Compare that to Germany, that's like eight, um, you know, almost more than three times the infrastructure. Um, so I think, you know, there will be more investment in healthcare um, capacity as well. And then finally, I think it's interesting to kind of consider new models of healthcare delivery. Um, and one exciting trend that I've been looking at um, over the past few months, actually, is this idea of uh, moving towards more specialised clinics. Uh, and this is where, again, the private sector can uh, provide that expertise and that efficiency that perhaps a multi-specialty uh, NHS hospital isn't quite set up to, to achieve. So just on that point a little further, um, this idea that by being able to provide things like routine operations, things like cataract surgeries, things like um, you know, hip replacement, um, a joint replacement of any, any kind, delivering that in a specialised setting, um, a specialised clinic, that means the same surgeon will come in to the hospital um, to the day in, day out, do the same operation, therefore get a lot quicker at it. And so you'll get more of that backlog sort of addressed um, in those specialised clinics. And that doesn't have to be limited to private sector kind of provision. Um, you know, it, it, there's a perfectly logical argument that um, the NHS should set up their own uh, specialised clinics. Uh, they have tried that in the past, but perhaps it's more pertinent now um, if you're trying to separate, you know, acute emergency procedures, which could include COVID patients, um, from routine things that can be planned. You want to keep those routine ops um, very much COVID free. Um, and so it makes sense doing those in separate settings. So that's just one idea of, of a different delivery model um, that we could see sort of after the pandemic. And I mean, you probably won't know the answer to this question, but it, does the private sector have the capacity to take on all the um, extra load that's been created as a result of the pandemic and the backlog of uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So one thing to know about private hospitals is that they usually operate only at around 50% capacity utilisation. 
Um, so they have a lot of empty beds. Um, they're actually reliant on the NHS sort of buying up um, sort of their, their services and to, to deal with the NHS waiting list. Um, and so I do think the private sector has the capacity for those extra um, elective operations. Um, will that completely tackle the waiting list? I don't think so. You know, there's a limit to how many days the consultants will do at those private settings. Um, but certainly I think they do have the capacity. Great. Um, we haven't touched upon technology yet, so I'd like to bring um, that uh, into the conversation. So what role do you think technology or um, and AI will play in healthcare um, provision going forward? Yes, I think this is a really interesting area because, um, you know, the incorporation of technology into healthcare has been a trend that, you know, we saw pre-pandemic, but it was quite sluggish. You know, healthcare was lagging behind a lot of other sectors in terms of adopting technology. And I think what COVID-19 has really done is accelerated that trend into adopting um, technology. I think there's going to be a, a much greater focus on digital delivery. That was one of the key um, objectives of the NHS long-term plan. Uh, and COVID has forced you know, particularly primary care, like GPs, but also outpatient clinics. Um, COVID has forced those uh, providers to, to move to virtual, you know, telephone consultations, video conferencing. Um, and I think now that the doctors are used to it and more comfortable with it and familiar with it, uh, that will only continue moving forward. So we're going to see a lot more of those um, initial consultations being done virtually, I think. Um, you know, beyond that and you know, moving into more acute settings, uh, I think, you know, this is where things like AI can um, you know, very exciting as to how, you know, what role they can play uh, in healthcare provision. Uh, and I think, you know, the key takeaway from me is that um, it will be a complement to doctors' decision-making, but I don't think it can entirely substitute it. Um, the reason being a lot of, um, you know, medical results um, uh, have a certain degree of subjectivity in, in interpretation. So I think the doctors, the consultants still need to, you know, make the final decision. But AI, you know, there's been numerous studies to show that uh, it can improve decision making um, in healthcare settings, um, you know, try and work out the optimal treatment, the optimal, uh, optimal um, care pathway uh, and aid medical decisions. So, you know, in short, I don't think it will ultimately replace doctors, um, but it will improve decision making, uh, improve the quality of care and very much be a complement um, to um, healthcare provision. And just wondering, in terms of your work, have you, do you do much in terms of working or, or have you um, been aware of any of the apps that are used when, whereby you obviously have someone on the other side of the app that you can put your um, symptoms in and they can probably tell you whether or not to go to hospital or, or, or to go to your GP? Yeah, so there's lots of great apps and ideas out there. I think, um, you know, when you come to sort of healthcare apps, the thing you have to be careful is there's lots of them out there and it's very much kind of early stages. Eventually, I think that market for healthcare um, sort of apps will consolidate, you know, that the best players um, will eventually win. Um, but at this stage, I don't think sort of technology in terms of apps can you know, completely replace the current care pathway where you have to go to a GP um, and then you get referred on to acute settings. Um, but, you know, things like mobile GPs, Babylon Health, um, those are already sort of, you know, disrupting the market. Um, and also I think where apps can play a much bigger role is in preventative healthcare. So, you know, being able to track um, people's um, sort of you know, heart rates, uh, glucose monitoring, um, all of that, and sort of alert people uh, to change their lifestyle. Um, and, you know, that can have a big impact on chronic disease management, things like diabetes, 
um, cardiac uh, conditions. From your point of view, if I ask you just um, in terms of your, your personal view on this, do you think there is something about seeing a doctor in person? Do, do you think that we need to make sure that we maintain that in our system? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, going to see a doctor is a very personal thing. Um, and a lot of people are more comfortable, uh, more, um, you know, they um, listen to the doctor's advice if they see them in person. Um, and, and they're more comfortable uh, if they do make those in-person visits. So I think, you know, face-to-face -face contact will always still have a role uh, and sort of hearing the decision from the doctor themselves um, will always be important. Um, but I think technology can still aid that decision-making process and make it more efficient and, and quicker. Um, so, and also, you know, reduce some of the paperwork, the bureaucracy around kind of recording patient data uh, and sort of, you know, working out the best care pathways. Uh, you know, a lot of time for, for GP is spent, you know, finishing patient notes, handwriting things, and that there's a lot of time that can be saved there. Um, but ultimately, I think, yes, um, you do need to kind of have, maintain that in-person face-to-face contact uh, for reassurance more than anything. Great. Um, you've mentioned already about um, growing demand, but this is something that um, is not going to go away. Um, and, and that's not just saying from the backlog of um, uh, surgeries, let's say, that's been created from the, the pandemic, but more so because of our ageing population. So how, how will healthcare provision in the UK have to um, adapt to accommodate that? So I think the first thing um, when considering an aging population is treating older people is inherently more expensive. Okay, so healthcare spending per capita, um, it's around about £1,000 per year for 10 to 50 year olds. That rises to £3,000 per year for 70 year olds and then £5,000 plus per year for 85 year olds. So, you know, a key challenge of the aging population is that we do need more investment in healthcare provision to deal with that um, higher age demographic. Um, you know, how might we do this? Higher taxes seems like the obvious answer. Um, increased healthcare expenditure as a percentage of GDP, as I've already alluded to. Um, but also a key kind of trend to deal with this aging population problem is, is to try and move as much acute care um, back into community settings and in the home. Uh, as I've said before, that leads, it's often better for the patient uh, quality of life. Uh, it can help sort of integrate them back into the community after their care. Um, and, you know, we're already seeing a rise in things like domiciliary care, home care. Uh, it's cheaper uh, in terms of provision. Um, and chronic disease management also needs to be a bigger focus. So things like diabetes, cardiovascular cancer, um, you know, it, it seems a bit counterintuitive because at the moment we're in a pandemic and infectious diseases is, is very much the focus. But once we get through this, um, you know, the, the key challenge with that aging population is people are going to have conditions um, for a considerably long period of time. Uh, and the NHS initially wasn't set up to deal with chronic conditions. You know, if you go back all the way to 1948, um, it was set up for uh, treating with acute uh, episodic um, problems. Whereas now the bigger problem with the aging population is people having these conditions for 10, 20, 30 years and life expectancies are only getting longer. Um, so yeah, ultimately it is a question of more investment into later year sort of care provision and trying to move as much um, acute provision back into the community and eventually uh, in homes. Great, and there is, oh, 
I mean, I don't really want to bring that up, but there is a, a bit of an ethical dilemma here uh, um, in terms of, you know, we've got people lasting uh, longer than ever. Uh, you know, at what point do you, as you said, that they cost the cost of, uh, you know, maybe keeping someone alive is more the 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 um, the older that they get. Um, you know, at what point do we have to make some decisions? Uh, about this as uh, as a as, as a government, and the second thing is that I, I wonder a little bit if there's you know if our when our quality of life does improve, that you would expect demand for healthcare services to maybe um, go down, but actually potentially um, that demand just stays there. Is that people just look towards more minor um, things because we expect to be healthy day in day out all of the time and when we're not feeling healthy we're just thinking like even if we're working at operating at 80 90 percent we're, we're you know getting help and trying to get support for that 80 uh, or 90 percent so what i'm trying to say is that it, it, it is this demand just always going to be there and do we really need to have a uh, a think about from a healthcare point of view what actually do we provide as a public healthcare um, system and what do we need to maybe think about not providing? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question because, you know, there'll be many studies out there that kind of postulate at least that, you know, by virtue of healthcare being public, um, that leads to much greater, you know, rising demand versus, you know, countries where you have to pay out of your own pocket. Um, and, you know, expectations for what a public healthcare system has to provide are always going to increase. Uh, and say, if you reduce waiting lists here, then you're going to have, um, you know, more demand elsewhere for, for perhaps simpler things. Um, and it's an interesting kind of ethical dilemma, as you said, um, for, for society to have. Um, I think, you know, what this comes down to is having a very robust framework, as you say, as to what the NHS um, is responsible for providing um, and, you know, empowering uh, clinicians to make those decisions. Um, so if a GP, you know, thinks that this is too minor for, for, for referral um, to, to secondary care, uh, then they need to make those hard decisions. I don't think it should be up to, to, to government to, to set out an entire framework of what the NHS should and should not include. Um, but I think certainly, you know, giving some discretion to at least the gatekeepers of the care pathway that the GPs um, as to, you know, when to refer onwards versus when to just say, look, you've got a runny nose, stay in bed for a week kind of thing. Um, I think that's ultimately where the power should lie, and that's how you get round that problem. Um, but also, I think it's a good thing uh, to have that kind of ever-increasing expe uh, expectation um, for healthcare standards to improve. Um, you know, uh, you know, I envisage moving to a society where wellness uh, and sort of healthcare provision is a lot more um, important, and sort of the, the focus is very much on that kind of wellness and well-being on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, rather than just having healthcare provision for, for acute physical uh, illnesses um, links back to the point we made earlier about um, mental health provision increasing as well. Right, and I, and I think the other thing to add on to that is um, maybe not from a physical health point of view, but pushing the responsibility more onto um, businesses, you know, onto schools. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be the NHS that provide um, these things when we talk about wellness. Um, you know, and even onto the individual um, in terms of the, being proactive um, with their own physical and their own mental health. 
Um, right, you'll describe yourself not as a, an economist, but I'm, I'm going to ask you this question as I ask um, every person that comes on to um, the show. What is your utopian economy? Well, okay, very interesting uh, thought, um, sort of, yeah, conundrum there. Um, so I think with a utopian economy, you know, there's lots of different ideas I can throw out here. Um, obviously, from a healthcare perspective, as I've said before, uh, you know, I'd like to see wellness and population health be prioritised um, in terms of spending, investment, uh, and also just general attitudes. Um, you know, I think moving beyond healthcare, there, I'd like to see kind of more accessible transport infrastructure, um, you know, the ability to move from different countries um, a lot more freely, uh, move towards a renewable um, energy source uh, based society and planet. Um, and, you know, moving on from that in terms of more kind of out there ideas, I think um, you know, one of the things I'd like to challenge is the centrality of that basic economic problem of scarcity, this idea that we have limited resources uh, and infinite wants. Um, and I think you know, the way to get around that problem, if you like, that, you know, we've got limited resources, we have to allocate them to whatever is the priority of the day kind of thing, um, is to continue investment in science and technology. Um, I think R&D funding, you know, currently in the UK, it's about 1.7% of GDP. I think we should continue to in increase that further. You know, countries like South Korea and Israel, it's more than 4%, the US, 2.7%. Um, and I think, you know, what that allows you to do by investing in that science and technology is if you like break free from that two-dimensional production um, possibility frontier and essentially you know continue um, to, to move forward outwards um, and uncover new resources if you like um, you know one of the refreshing things was that you know a rover just landed on Mars a couple of weeks ago um, and you know many people have questioned should we be doing that in, in, the, in, a, in the context of the pandemic but I think absolutely so because um, by investing in that technology and continuing development, that could potentially open up um, almost infinite resources. Um, and yeah, that's my idea sort of, of the utopian economy, lots of science and technology investment um, and health and wellness being prioritised. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you uh, today, Abhishek. Um, I want to wish you the best of luck for the cricket season as well. Fingers crossed that we're good to go um, at the end of April. Um, and uh, Yes, uh, thank you so much again for joining us. Excellent, thank you very much, Will. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the show. Do reflect on what your expectations are of the NHS and whether we should ever put a value on human life. If you wish to follow me on Twitter, then just search for at Mr. Will Haynes. That's at Mr. Will Haynes. I hope to be back with another episode in the coming months.